Welcome to the Factory Futurist Podcast, where we profile the thought leaders, technologies, and companies revolutionizing high-tech manufacturing. We learn from the best about how they sustain high-performance leadership in technology, their personal life, and their companies. If you're just joining the podcast, my name is Drew Allen. I'm the host, and when I'm not chatting with these fine folks, I'm the VP of Strategic Development at Grace Technologies. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to get future episodes by subscribing on your favorite podcast app or by visiting thefactoryfuturist.com. Today, I'm excited to have on Mike Marks. Mike Marks co-founded Indian River Consulting Group in April 1987. He began his consulting practice after working in distribution management for more than 20 years. Over the years, his narrow focus in B2B channel-driven markets has created an extensive number of deep executive relationships within virtually every business vertical in construction, industrial, OEM, agricultural, and healthcare. This is a super important message for every manufacturer, distributor, um, and person in the industrial automation space today as we are grappling with the devastating effects of the coronavirus. This is not his first rodeo um, in a crisis situation, and his extensive background is incredibly helpful here. Please enjoy this podcast as much as I have. Again, here's Mike Marks. Well, today we have Mike uh, Marks on. Um, I'm very excited to have him. He is uh, quite uh, world-renowned for his work in the industrial space. Before we get started and start talking about crises, um, like the current one that we are in, um, I uh, could you just fill in the folks a little bit about your background and uh, why people should listen to you? <laughs> um, well, because they probably don't have anything better to do at the moment. They're listening to your podcast. And, and if the past ones have been good, this might be worthwhile. So, I mean, they're, you know, they're going to make their own calls. Through. Um, I, I own a consulting company. Um, I spent my whole life in industrial distribution, been in the consulting business over 30 years. I'm a research fellow for the National Association of Wholesaler Distributors, um, teach at Purdue. Prior to that, I was at Texas A&M. Um, and written like six books and, and, you know, I got a note from my mother. It says I'm really smart. So we're, we're in the middle of all this coronavirus because everybody's, everything's kind of gone unhinged and we spend probably half of our time out of the country working with distributors in industrial markets in both Asia, Europe, and Latin America. So are you patient zero? What's that? Are you patient zero? Um, no, no, but, uh, but well, uh, actually we, we missed the original outbreak in Wuhan. We were, we were several hours South or we were supposed to, well, anyway, we had an acquisition fall through in Guangdong that we were working on. And, and, uh, if that thing hadn't fallen through, we would have been sitting right there when it all happened. So I'm, I'm just, sometimes the stars align. Oh, very good. So, uh, for today's, uh, podcast, uh, we're going to break it up into kind of about three sections. Uh, one is going to, the first thing I really want to talk about is uh, where you see uh, this coronavirus crisis hitting the industrial businesses from both the manufacturer as well as the distributor point of view. Um, I want to then shift into where kind of, you know, w what your best practices and best advice are to leaders in a crisis. And then I want to know where you think uh, the future is going in the industrial business uh, for uh products, technology, business models, um, and how has this crisis shaped those futures? So let's jump into the industrial crisis first. Uh, well, 
where do you, what do you think has changed in the last few days from your calculus, maybe a couple of weeks ago? And, uh, you know, you have your, you have your thumb on the, on the pulse, uh, where you, where, where do you feel that pulse is today? Well, we're still there. There's basically any time a pandemic or anything like this works through a system. There's three, three parts to it. Um, there's the recognition and the early action planning. There's the new normal as people get used to things basically sucking and then there's a recovery. And right now we're still, I would say probably 30% of the way through the, the recognition and action planning. I mean, there are still people running around thinking the whole thing is overblown and it's a conspiracy to discredit the president. And, and uh, of course they're sitting in their own little cocoon. Um, if you start taking a look at what's happened, China hit China first and China now is, it, now that they've closed their borders, they actually, they are done with, with contagion inside the country. The only cases they've had have been travelers coming in um, if I wanted to go to Hong Kong right now, I have to pay for my own lodging and food and 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 self-isolate myself for 14 days legally before I can do anything else in an airport hotel. So so um, this will pass. But what's happened is that people are walking around now infected because you're typically infected for nobody really knows for sure yet, but, but for something like seven to 14 days before you're showing symptoms. And, and so you can be passing that without symptoms to other people. And that's basically what happened in South Korea when everything went crazy. It just happened really fast. And the South Koreans, they jumped on it. They're kind of like the poster child for how to do it right. The Europeans kind of ignored it. And now um, Financial Times in London is tracking sort of every country and every country is kind of going through this thing. Think about through uh, I'm sorry for the metaphor, but think about a rat going through a python. And in the states here, we haven't even really swallowed the python or the rat yet. I mean, so we got a long way to go. Um, all the kids that are home now, I, I'll be shocked if they end up going back to school before summer break, which is going to be in May. So, so we're at the early side of it now. And what's basically happened, people are recognizing this is a big deal and they have to do something. So what they're doing is it's just kind of hunkering down, maybe doing some cost reduction, you know, hopefully doing some stress testing if they're intelligent on hey, their just, business. Just, just for the listeners quick, we are shooting this on March 20th. So just use that as a bit of a time marker. Uh, we should be releasing this within the next few days. So, um, you know, but, but things are changing fluidly. Well, McKenzie and Company, the big consulting company, if somebody goes to their website and looks, they're putting out what I consider to be high quality data and they're updating it probably every three or four days and, and they're being nice. You don't have to be a subscriber inside their network. It's, it's, they're putting it out in the public domain and it cuts through a lot of the drama that we're seeing on TV. Mm. So you see what's going on. So the most important thing for anybody, and this is outside of industrial as well, any business, yours, ours, everybody needs to stress test their business. And that's what we've been doing basically for the last five weeks. And what you basically do is you take the company and you say, let's assume that we have a 60% decline in revenue. And, and how long can we last before we run out of cash or we blow a covenant with the bank and they call a credit line? And, and so the step one of the stress test is how long can you last? And 60% is basically... What, what people should be expecting to see. Now, whether it's a month or six months, I mean, it's a crapshoot, I'm not that smart. But, but um, 
what, what ends up happening, we've been testing people at like, you know, 30, 40, and 60% decline in revenue. And it used to be months to die. And for some companies now, it's like weeks or even days to die, you know, before they run out of money. So you do the assessment, see how they're, long they're going to last. And then the second thing you do is you say, what actions do I need to take that can extend that so I can last longer? Because step one is you've got to survive. And, 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 and the way you do that, fundamentally, if assuming you figured out that how you can survive, you then, number one, protect your people, number two, protect your market share, and then number three, try to make a couple bucks along the way. But, but protecting your employees is most important, but there's a lot of academic research that says if you lose a customer in the middle of one of these disruptions, a lot of this happened back after 9-11, if you lose the customer, the odds of having that customer come back in the next three to five years is very, very low. Mm. So, so it's really important and there's gonna be huge supply chain issues as well. So, so people right now are just in the early stages of engaging and figuring out what they need to do to stress test and figure out how to be alive. And then things will get more interesting from there. There's really two steps to that. I mean, I mean so is, is it fair to say that you, you're feeling that the industrial distribution business as well as manufacturers selling into large industrials like Procter & Gamble and Kimberly-Clark and the automotives and oil and gas sectors potentially could see a 60% decline in revenue? Yep. Wow. Absolutely. And well, I mean, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best. So so the key thing is... is uh, um, it, you've got to be around and then, you know, and, and most companies, a lot of the private equity investments where they've used the purchase price, 60% of debt, they're going to, there's going to be an awful lot of defaults going happening here, probably in the next 60 days. Uh, on just on a side note on that question, um, do you feel, you know, there's been a, a large amount of acquisitions in the, um, in the industrial distribution business. Uh, how how do you assess the stability based on the balance sheet health of, of, of kind of the industrial distribution business across the U.S.? Um, it, it's everything's a bell curve, and and the the thing that def, when you're in a disruption, the most important uh, financial statement you have is your balance sheet and then your cash flow. And most people have been, had a myopic focus on the income statement: how much can I sell and what kind of margin do I make? And let's try to keep our costs down. And, and it's all the balance sheet. So what's gonna happen when people start to run out of cash, they get really panicky. Um, I'm chairman of a, I'm on several boards, but we're gonna be acquiring a number of companies here this year, which, which are smaller firms. They're all freaked out about this, you know, and, and what we're gonna basically do is say, look, I'll give you a, a one-time multiple of your business now, give you some money, I'll bring you into our company and I'll pay you the balance of the purchase price on the, EBITDA that you generate in 2021. In other words, give them a timeout on 2020 because they're afraid. But a lot of these are essentially asset purchases. And 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 what you're going to see is that is the guys start to run out of cash. If if they get close to running out of cash, they're not going to be able to sell their company. They're going to be able to sell the assets of their company instead of a regular acquisition where I buy the name and everything else. But you're going to see an awful lot of acquisitions where the strong are gonna be buying the weak. And it may not even necessarily be size where the bigs are buying the small because some of the big guys have huge debt that they're carrying and they're gonna be in a lot of trouble. And so they'll probably be spinning off parts of their business, including some of the manufacturers. Uh, are you are you at liberty to say some of the bigs who you anticipate to see 
taking a hit like that? Um, no, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't touch that with a, you know, until I leave with Elon Musk to go to Mars. The day before, <laughs> call me up, it will violate all the non-disclosures, but then I have to get off the planet. No problem. There's a, there's a fair amount of that going on right now, Drew, in terms of at least the conversations, because everybody's so freaked out. Yeah, so, so the first step is recognition and action planning. And what is the next step? Well, there's really two parts of the action planning. Okay. Um, the first one is, is you're going to say, okay, things are uncertain. We, you know, you're seeing all the letters. This is the week that everybody's sending out the letters about, you know, to our customers and, you know, we're on top of this and you can count on us. And it's uh, basically, they're all generic, clueless letters that say, trust me, I'm in sales. But, but um, <laughs> what, what's going to come out of this, there people have done things like um, cut back on travel because they didn't have any choice. They're cut back on overtime. They're having the people can work from home, working from home. And, and they might have done a couple layoffs. You know, I've, I've got actually several people have started to do layoffs. But typically um, what they do is they go through this process and then they think, OK, then we go into what we call the waiting period. So I've taken my initial action. I've done all my communication, talked to everybody, and I hope I'm OK. And so I'm just going to sit around and now watch for a while. And if, if with the hope everybody's got is that it's going to stay stable. So this will be enough. And then all of a sudden I'm in the new normal. What's probably going to happen if some of these patterns repeat themselves as they have in other countries, um, this is going to extend and get worse and worse. And then what happens, there's there's going to be kind of a um, holy crap, Batman, this is worse than I thought. And they're going to have to go back to the table and actually break what we call breaking glass. You know, the, the things that they don't touch and they're afraid to touch, they're going to have to break some of them or they won't be around. And a lot of times people are afraid to do those hard things. and. And then they basically slide down. That's why the stress testing is so important. Well, in our, in our business, we had to break a little bit of glass. We had to get rid of our uh, weekly happy hour because <laughs> it would be over. It was over the ten, uh, the ten employees. Yeah, <laughs> which right. uh, you know sucks. <laughs> well, there, there's uh, what, what happens typically is when people get to that second part. Um, it's not about dealing with hourly workers. It's really much more about um, dealing with senior executives and collapsing your executive team and the rest. I mean, it's just people have to make major changes and cuts based on the strength of their balance sheet. I've, I'm on the board of one company that has been putting cash away and very conservative and has no debt. We don't we don't even have to stress test because we could just we could be upside down and, and be 60 percent down in revenue and we could whine about it. But it takes several years for us to be in trouble. That's the most extreme example. But most folks, I mean, if you look at the big airlines, Delta, all the big airlines have all pulled all their cash lines in. they've hit all their bank loans. And Delta's got one month of cash flow sitting here in the 20th of month, United and and uh, United's got two months. Southwest and American have have like three months of cash, and then they're they're done. They're just they can't they can't do anything. So so most people don't have the cash reserves to do it, and that's going to create the disruption. But there's two points I'd like to make. Um, if you look at what's happened in China, and and history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. They they they're starting to loosen up all those requirements now. And, and so as people start to go back to the factories, they're, they're trying to get home after Chinese New Year because most of them are stuck with their parents for a lot of this. But even the companies have gone back and started production again because everything's still closed down in narrow geographies. You cannot move product in China inside of China. Everybody's talking about their exports and putting things in containers. 
the biggest problem is on the road and rail transport in China right now. And it's not that they don't have the infrastructure. It's just that the regulations aren't allowing people to do it. And there isn't enough capacity and from a logistics point of view to move things around. So and, and Europe's completely shut down right now. I mean, it's, it's like a ghost town. The, the Munich airport, I mean, you could set off a grenade in there and not hurt anybody. And it's probably one of the busiest airports in the world. So, so we're going to see people are going to be running out of product and, and people that want to grow. And if you want to grow, to me, the most important thing is plan on having some supply chain issues. Make sure the ration your product to your really good customers. You want to be selling. If, if you assume you're going to run out of product, you take care of your A and B customers first and not the ones that are high volume, low profit, pain in the butt grain. You got to tell them if you don't say no, you're going to end up supporting all that at low profit. You'll, you'll be out of business because you won't have product and you won't have any revenue. Sorry, I don't mean to sound so optimistic. Um. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to digest all that. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to digest, digest all that right now. Um, so, where where are things you think that people? Uh, what, what is some glass that you think should that everybody should be looking to break? Uh, try to break it down maybe by manufacturers versus distributors. Uh, and then, where are areas where either you should double down or? Uh, you, you think you're going to see uh, ample return on uh, on investment uh, through these hard times? Well, let's start with manufacturers, and we just kind of work down because I think you also need to talk to system integrators as well, because yeah. a lot of them are going to be very vulnerable. And that's really if you talk about the the industrial market, and if you talk about factory automation, the rest of it, system integrators are an absolute integral part, and they're very vulnerable through this. So, so from a manufacturer. The basic view we take is plan for the worst and hope for the best. And every dollar that you can't ship is a dollar you'll probably never see again. And so the, what's normally happened when people do reductions in force, they, they take, let's take, uh, you know, our executives are going to take a pay cut. We're going to forego our bonuses and, and we're going to give up the country club membership. And then they gut everybody on the factory floor and all the logistics and quality and everything else. The most important thing a manufacturer needs to protect going through this, especially for the next three or four months, is their production. And, and, and so fundamentally, in the Navy, what happens in a sub, there's always two teams. There's a gold team and a blue team. Same submarine, but they just completely switch out bunks. I mean, everything just works so, it's, so they have backups. And, and so we've got a manufacturer that's running 24-7 now because they figure their main competitors were in Europe and they're here domestically. And, and so they're running 24 seven because they figured with Europe shut down, there's going to be major shortages with competitors. So they've got an opportunity once everybody's through all the panic mode that they can gain some significant share. But what they've done is, is they, number one, they hired a cleaning crew that comes in every two hours, you know, in terms of the coronavirus and sanitation and, you know, the electric water. I mean, there's a lot of technology out there now other than somebody you don't talk to that's sitting there with a scrub brush and a rubber-made cart. I mean, there's some science to this now. And so they've got every two hours, remember, they're running 24-7, every two hours a cleaning crew's coming in there and going crazy. They've actually scheduled and they have, they have uh, two teams for each shift because as people are starting to lose jobs, if a lot of these things, if a lot of these positions, they're actually running a machine and, and they can be treated as temporary work and they desperately need work. And, and if you can get the right kind of support, 
what they've done is they've created a lot of backup. They've, they're doing things with job sharing. But the whole point is that once somebody's infected, it's going to be, by the way, um, I should have said this at the beginning, um, every company should know, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when one of your employees is gonna be infected. And you need to decide in advance instead of going, what do we do? What are you going to do in terms of taking care of that employee? And how are you going to notify their coworkers? And are the coworkers going to go home and, and self-isolate? Are you going to try to tough it through? Which is basically what, what's happened in, in Iran and the rest of it. I mean, we've got 100 people a day dying in Iran on this right now. But, but so if, if I end up getting somebody infected on a crew, because you can't control their environment because they're away from work, I have to let that crew go. And, and, and so do I have a backup? The key thing is to keep the production going. And, and this needs to, and normally we pay more attention to white collar workers and all the rest of it. And we cut these guys down really tight. And, and when you're in a massive disruption like this, this is the perfect time to, to sort of take a look at all the white collar and what major things can you change. And then one test, um, you'll probably like this one, Drew. Um, let, let's assume that you're, you're uh, president of a small manufacturing business or a distributor or system integrator. I'll ask you this question. Let's assume that all your employees came to you today on Friday, on the 20th of, of March, and said, I'm out of here. It's crazy. I quit. You spend the weekend on Monster.com and everywhere else, and you find qualified replacements that will come in Monday morning. You with me on my scenario? Yep. Everybody quit. You got new guys coming in. On Monday morning, all your employees come back and say, we've made a horrible mistake and we have our jobs back, but they're gone. You don't have to bring them back. And the question, this is, the, this is really important. What percentage of those employees, assuming you had a qualified replacement, would you rehire? And if the answer isn't 100%, those are the ones that should be going right now. And most people don't say 100%, and it's hard. Um, yeah, so earlier layoffs are, are going to be a better... Uh, uh, oh, there's so much research. All the layoffs that people do, the euphemisms, reduction in force or right-sizing, there's a bunch of stupid HR words out there. But a layoff, universally, people regret. When you ask them six months after the layoff, did you go far enough? And they said, I didn't cut far enough. And so can we learn from other people's experience or are we gonna have to learn it on our own? Because here's what happens. Some talent that you would have loved to have acquired, whether it's engineering or, or uh, bring systems online, I mean, really critical talent that wouldn't have been available before, it's gonna be available now and you need to create the room, not just, you're not trying to protect the status quo, you're trying to position yourself for something new. So you want to be able to cut deep enough that you have the headroom that you can bring in some talent. You have to say, am I playing the game to win or am I playing the game not to lose? Mm. That's good. That's really good. Okay, so um, any other different pieces or, or what, what would be the advice to the system integrators and what about to the distributors? The system integrators. Uh, uh, most of this was uh, towards manufacturers for the production piece. Well, the manufacturers, it's all about production, but for all of them, it's all about preservation of cash. You know, so it's about cash flow and what you can do with your balance sheet. Um, it's too late right now to renegotiate credit lines. Um, when people come out of this, the smart companies have already done this, but they they set up concentric rings to protect their employees that as the economy gets worse, these rings collapse before I have to do a layoff. Things like a 401k match, 
right? I match a lot. We make, I link the match not to some socialism. I meant, I set the 401k match based on my return on asset performance or my profit, high profit, I'll match a lot. But what they do is they can reduce the 401k contributions. They can increase the, the medical deductibles that people have. They typically companies will put in two or three extra holidays and those holidays go away when the economic conditions are bad. And, and, and so you create these rings because what you want to do is you want to invest and develop your talent so you can keep them. You don't want to treat them as fungible resources that can just throw off the back of the boat. So, but it's too late to do a lot of that stuff now. If I'm a distributor, I'm faced with a lot of the same things a manufacturer is. And, and for a distributor, this sounds really stupid. Um, it's their warehouse. They got to be able to ship. And when somebody gets, and, and the other thing is consolidating product Distributors need to move product around so that they can have inventory that's not in quarantine areas that they, you know, there's, it's going to be, they're going to have some places that are going to be completely closed down when the case count gets high. And if you have your inventory there, it doesn't matter if everything's locked down, you can't get to it. So, so they need to take a look to make sure uh, what happens a lot, we'll pull the inventory out of branches and pull it into a central distribution center. One thing, one thing I've been, I, I, I've been reading you know, I've been reading through the uh, the most recent one was the California uh, shelter in place order. Right. Is your understanding? I mean, most industrial businesses at this point would you consider under that order essential? Do you think that you know? Do you think that distributors supplying goods to these pharmaceutical industries to this uh, to the you know the 3ms of the world uh do you think that those guys are going to be exempted by the essentialness kind of rules um, uh, right now from what we're seeing it looks like some and i i don't know i can't give you a straight answer this is changing every time i talk to somebody but my guess is probably a little more than a third of the typical industrial businesses will be considered essential because of their customer base and where the products are going okay and and by the way one tip i mean just from a commercial point of view I need to be able to have a story from the sheriff when they come to the door to say, why are people here? And and because this is, this is how it's being enforced right now, it's already started in California. So if I'm selling to a medical device manufacturer, I'm selling to anything, you need the, your, your distributor or even your manufacturer or a system integrator, you need to get a letter from that customer because in, in, in their medical or healthcare, that get, if you have that letter and you put it up to the sheriff, you only need it from one customer and you're pretty much good to go. Now, I'm just making that up. That's not official. Uh, this is just sort of common sense, which isn't terribly common right now. So, <laughs> okay. What about what about system integrators? Anything? Any difference of advice uh, besides conservation of cash flow and uh, you know, splitting up teams? Um, the one thing that system integrators are horrible at, uh, and and, and uh, they're very good at engineering. They're very good at solving complex problems. A lot of times they're terrible businessmen, and they want to they want to get money, uh, they want to get the business, and they figure they'll be okay. The problem is a lot of them don't get adequate deposits up front. You need they need to really, and this is uncomfortable. And well, I'm I'm an engineer. I'm afraid I won't get the order if I ask for a 20% deposit up front. But but a lot of these people, are, these big companies, are doing stuff are going to be completely locked down, and it might take six months for them to get paid or a year. Right. If somebody's going through a receivership and if they don't have the cash, they die. So so step one is they need to be much more aggressive about money. And, and I'm not saying getting paid in advance, but typically 
this, what they're doing is they're integrating hardware, software, and an application where they got this thing up where they're taking a performance warranty, they're guaranteeing this water treatment plan or whatever they're doing is going to actually work. So what they want to do is they want to, you know, schedule it out. So basically when, when they sign off to the systems performing as specified, I'm getting the last 20% of the money, not sending them 90% of on an invoice. They need, they need to get paid as they go along or they're just not going to be around. Um, the second thing is that what happens when, when you go through a downturn like this, people tend to narrow their suppliers and they take care of their really important customers or their important suppliers. So if, they, if, if you have a big plant and they've been using three or four or five different system integrators on different projects, they will tend to try to keep the one guy that's most important happy. So, so this is, it's almost impossible if you're a system integrator to, to, to be able to go out and capture new customers in this, this, this period of deflection. Everybody's just confused. It'll be different once these other people start to fail. The one thing that's gonna happen if you're a system integrator, there's most of them by definition are undercapitalized. So a lot of them will go away. Now the, the engineers and the expertise stays, but the company may split up. They may be free agents. They may go somewhere else. But, but the thing that's really interesting, the, the growth I'm gonna have as a system integrator when somebody else drops the ball because they don't have the cash and they're going bankrupt and they've left the customer high and dry, one of the things, if I was if I was in the system integrator business, and that doesn't matter which manufacturer I'm aligned with, but but what I would do is I would I would have a special program to go look. There's going to be several issues with people not being able to complete. They want to, but they don't have the cash and the resources. We have an emergency fix it, get you out of trouble. And, and don't wait till it's really broken. When it starts to smell, please give us a call before it rots. Yeah. And that's where the upside's gonna happen. Because when you have a lot of small businesses, a perfect example, um, cleaning is really important right now. You know, if you just kind of think about it, and, and that's part of how we keep healthy and people don't get, get viruses. But, but what's happening in the cleaning business, a lot of these contract cleaners have already sort of collapsed and gone broke. And, and there's a, a number of them that are squared away, professionally managed. And by the way, that doesn't mean big. It just means professionally managed that are being able to go in and pick up these things as these other people are, are dropping. So the one thing to realize when you have a bad market and people start to go broke, those customers are still buying from somebody. And, and to you or I, we didn't go broke. It's new growth to us. So there's a real opportunity there, but somebody's got to position themselves for it. So um, before we get into so so then what, what, after the new normal what's the what's the next phase? Well, the, the new normal is going to be slugging it out. What's going to happen once we're through this first you know sort of recognition and action planning and and it all gets goofy and things settle out right? We have we have the cases, the things kind of working through. It's going to get a whole lot worse where it gets better. But but what's going to happen? We're going to whoever has product is going to gain share. And, and those people that are trying to support everybody for as long as they can, they won't do well because they'll be out of product. They're going to lose their big customers. And the people at Ration Product that have paid attention to their supply chain are going to do a whole lot better because if, if, if somebody needs a programmable logic control and all of a sudden the factories are shut down, there's wonderful piles of logic controls if I'm Siemens, but they're all sitting in Germany and I'm in the U.S., it doesn't do me any good. So... So you're going to see people actually changing vendors and everything else because they got to keep these systems working. 
And, and so you'll have somebody that might have been a Schneider house, and all of a sudden they have to be a Rockwell house because Schneider can't deliver. And I mean, it's not a comment on Schneider. Everybody's going to be facing these problems. And, and the distributors and the system integrators are an integral part of what the customers can actually see. So the new normal, you're going to see a significant reduction in margin, right? Because it's the old demand and supply. Mm -hmm. A whole lot of businesses are chasing limited demand. And so margins are going to go down. And there's not much people are going to be able to do about that in, in this new normal uh, because he who has the cash wins. I got a PO. If you don't want, you know, it's kind of like when GE said our terms are net 90 days. If that's unacceptable, don't don't respond to our request for quotation. Right. And, and we're going to we're going to see a lot of that right now. So you can see people asking for extended terms and price discounts. So if I'm a system integrator, distributor or manufacturer somewhere in this value chain, I need to be going back upstream and saying, what can I do? If I'm a distributor, it's a lot easier because I might be buying, you know, from three or four wiring device manufacturers. And, and instead of sort of spreading it out, I can decide to only buy from, instead of selling what, what, what the customer is asking for, I can sell them one brand and have it work as the product is functionally equivalent. I'll consolidate my purchase instead of with four suppliers with one, so I'm bigger. And, and they'll actually start to concentrate because they figure I'm going to make it and the other guys won't. So, so th th there's an awful lot of work in terms of negotiating terms and negotiating consignment programs. I think you'll see a big pickup from, from the strong manufacturers. You'll see a pickup of, because think what happens to the cash flow if I do a consignment inventory from a manufacturer to a distributor. The distributor does a consignment inventory with the system integrator. When the money gets paid, everything kind of goes back and you do it via electronic funds transfer. You've seen an awful lot of that in the consumer packaged goods at the B2C, the business to consumer. And, and when you start looking at this, the inventory turns and velocity, the working capital to sales ratio is way better because we, we've taken all the extra money out that people needed to work. Mm, okay, so the consignment inventories. Okay, that's interesting. Do you think... So I, I see potentially two ways to, uh, that I kind of want to take a little part of this conversation. Um, one, what do you think the implications are for international business? And two, I mean, are we looking at a wave of, we were already seeing people moving the manufacturing back from Asia to the U.S. Are we looking at a massive potential wave of uh, moving manufacturing, you know, of onshoring our supply chains? Um, well, I'm, I'm not smart enough to, to be able to give you a real answer, but I'm a consultant so I can make something up. Um, well, but I mean, a big part of this has to do with the political environment. If you forget the pandemic, if you go back to that, we were in the middle of just turning into a giant urinary distance contest between the U.S. and China. And, and, and we got things going on in Europe and the, and the new North American agreements are all kind of goofy. And so, so there's been a large scale retreat from globalization, which would tend to increase reshoring. But because of the fact that we have excess capacity, does the world need another wire manufacturer? Does the world need another uh, circuit breaker manufacturer? Is there any shortage? If any company sort of goes out of business, is there any shortage of competitors that will step on their dead carcass and sell their customers? And the answer in most cases is no. I mean, it's just, there's no shortage. So, so a lot of this is, I think, more hope than reality, because here's the problem. I can reshore, but every business knows how hard is it to get through a price increase with the customer? 
So if you figure when we come out of this coronavirus thing, that we're we're going to be we're going to come out. It's going to seem like growth when we come into the recovery from the new normal. We'll come back to recessionary levels or something less. I mean, all all the central banks globally are all worried about a global depression right now. That's why they're trying to inject so much cash in. And because of the problem that we've had with deflation and just sort of flirting with it, there's not a lot that, that central banks can do anymore. These, so, these so numbers that the central bank, I mean, the, the, the releases, I mean, these, these numbers seem to be on par, if not larger than what was happening in 2008, 2009. Oh, this, this is, because this is global, the impact on this is going to be significantly larger and it probably won't be recognized middle of the year, May, June, July. Wow. This is way larger than that. All right. Well, let's, should we, should we move in? Oh, oh one other thing on, uh, okay. So we're, so we're, so we're definitely looking at some problems on the international side. Um, what about, by, by the way, just the cat, the punchline on that is right. there is no international business. I mean, it, it's, it's the financial markets are locked up right now, waiting to see what central banks and governments are going to do. And Europe's completely closed down. Nothing's going in or out. And, and, and we're just, it's all going to come back. The question is, is it going to come back in a globalization friendly environment, or are we going to get back to the parochial? Let's put up our little barriers because globalization makes supply chains. Here's how it works. As supply chains become more efficient, they get more brittle. Just in time means almost late. So if the internet went down, if the internet went down, we wouldn't be having this conversation because it's all voice over IP. And if the internet went down, people would be paralyzed, couldn't get cash out of machines, everything would be terrible, credit cards wouldn't work. But if I was a subsistence fisherman in Bangladesh, I wouldn't even know that the internet went down. So if you start thinking about societies, as they get more complex, they get brittle. And, and, and so what's happened with this huge disruption, all this brittleness is all broken. We don't even know what's broken yet until we try to put it back together. And, and it takes the interesting thing we talk about supply chain, it typically takes a minimum of six months and often 12 months to build a viable supply chain. So, so what is the economic impact of that with all this brittleness and it's all broken? That's, that's what people I don't think are really talking about yet. What, what industries... Um, the, the, the two that I'm, I'm already hearing about, I mean, obviously the, the oil shock, you know, oil potentially going down to 15, 20 bucks a barrel. I mean, that's, that's hitting, um, oil producers, but most of those guys have built in hedges for as chemical companies. So Exxon obviously has its chemical business that becomes more profitable. Um, so that might be up, but, but what industries are you, are you particularly concerned about? Um, the other one that I've, had discussions with uh, is the automotives. Um, but uh, do you have kind of a, a list of uh, worrisome industries that you're, uh, that if, you, if you're focused on those industries, you should refocus on some other ones or? Uh, just well, if you've developed expertise and customer relationships in an industry, it's probably taken you guys a couple of decades to build it. And you don't just decide the markets I'm in that I've been in for the last two decades suck, so I'm gonna go do something else. Um, if you really want to go do something else, you're going to do a whole lot better buying a company rather than moving it. So, so it's, it's the other thing, if you think about it, we're still analog beings living in a digital world and people have long memories. And, and if, if I'm involved with the automotive business and, and people have shut their factories down for a couple of weeks and they said, you know, we're only going to be shut down for a couple of weeks, 
that that's that's it goes to the the Spanish word or actually the Mexican usage of the word mañana. Mañana doesn't mean later; it just means not now, and 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 not now can be a year from now. So so I I'd be very surprised if you see these plants opening up and getting back into production here in the first of April because this thing hasn't even begun to peak yet. We're we're still in this country. We're still in this stage that that the the infected people aren't showing symptoms and they're infecting other people. And so we're going to see this big rise here in a couple of weeks. And, and so it'll, it'll stay close. So I think you can't change. You need to figure out, this is just a long slog and you got to figure out a little bit of innovation and what can you do along the way? There's no easy way to get out of this. It's just, uh, according to this, a technical consulting term, but things are just going to suck for probably about a year. I had, I had two, uh, I had two worrisome things happen to me. One, I left the gym when it was still open and I turned on the radio and uh, the there was a volleyball league being advertised on the radio starting uh, April 14th. <laughs> I, just, I just couldn't help but chuckle. Uh, the second, maybe more personal worrisome one was I was actually in Chicago last weekend. Uh, I had a class canceled at Loyola, but decided, hey, I'm going to go see some friends. Um, and uh, I was staying at uh, one of the Marriott properties in Chicago. And there was, uh, I was having to wait quite a long time for the elevator. And I, I and so I was sitting there in the, one of the uh, attendants uh, for the rooms uh, she was kind of waiting there with me. And I said, oh, you know, so that toilet paper that's on your cart is going to be gold. And she goes, what are you talking about? And, and, I, and, I, and I go, well, have you heard what's going on? She's like, well, I've noticed that there's a lot of people, you know, in the rooms. I noticed that I have to reply, replenish everyone's toilet paper. And I go, yeah, well, this is going to get really bad. Have you heard about the coronavirus? And she thinks for a minute. She goes, yeah, yeah, I think I've heard about it. And I said, I said, I don't think you're going to have any guests in the next week or two. And the, the, the look on her face when I told her that was of complete shock, you know, and, and I, I still think that there's a large subset of the population that's just not ready for this. <laughs> like, well, I mean, it, what, it, I think you're spot on the money. I mean, most of the, most of the corona case, coronavirus cases we've got right now are young people. And what happens here, here's the issue. This is what people don't understand. And speaking as a baby boomer, I'm, I'm in the target high risk mode. If I get the coronavirus, my, my, at this and again, these are preliminary numbers. I mean, it, it, think about it this way. There's facts, there's informed opinions, which if you're talking about the coronavirus, that means you're an immunologist, you're a scientist, you're a PhD, and then there's guesses. So there's facts, informed opinions, and guesses. What I have is a guess. The, the scientists have said, we, we're getting early data on the mortality rate, but the mortality rate, if you're under 40, is gonna be, I mean, I'm, th these numbers will change, but it's like less than 1%, it's like 0 0.3 or 0.4 for you. If I get the coronavirus, right, because I'm over 60, my, my fatality rate is 10%. So, so it, it's almost 10 times high, it's more than 10 times higher for me. So what's happening, the young people can go out and go, yeah, so I get the coronavirus. I just want to get it, get over with and be done. It's not going to hurt me one way or the other. 
But if one of these people go visit one of their parents, there's a one in 10 chances that they're going to get their parents killed. So, I mean, and, and so all these, number one, people aren't aware because you're absolutely right. And, and by the way, what does it say about a company for that contract cleaner or that, that maintenance person at that Marriott property that they haven't explained the risks of their employees? And, and there's so many safeguards that have been put together for people that are cleaning. I mean, you can go to ISSA.org, which is the International Sanitary Supply Association, which is part of the Global Bio-Risk Advisory Council's part of it. I mean, there's a bunch of heavyweights that are there, and there's all kinds of things that could have been done to protect that person. Right. But it, the fact they didn't even tell her, what does that say about they're, they're more worried about their money than their talent and people, yeah. you know? So, sorry, well, I, I, I mean... I think, I think actually that's a pretty good segue into the, the second portion of this conversation. Um, talk to me about leadership in crisis. Um, you know, what, what, what is the executive, you know, what, what, what are the floor managers need to be the attitude that they need to be taking their communication strategies and what do, what do executive leaderships and system integrators, distributors and manufacturers, um, you know, what, what, what's the tact and the tactics and strategies that they need to be putting in place besides the kind of the business safeguards we discussed earlier. Well, that, yeah, the, the business safeguards that should have happened on day one and, and it needs to be monitored and maintained, but. But in a crisis, leaders lead. And I mean, if, if you look at history, history is the same, the same thing happening over and over again. I mean, if you can go back long before the bubonic plague was was the uh, Arona, I can't remember. It started with an A, but it was a it was a virus that went through and killed. It basically destroyed the Roman Empire. Um, and and what happened when Marcus Aurelius was Caesar back then? He he saw what was going on and and. They went through all kinds, they sold all kinds of royal possessions and generated cash to, because all their coffers, you know, they couldn't get the taxes. They had a big financial problem. So, so, and then he stayed there and led through the whole thing. And while people were dying and a lot, a lot of the executives, you know, the, the sort of rich people where it's all about me, screw everybody else. I mean, I mean, at some point they'll all die out, but, but um, a real leader is going to be, be concerned with people and, and, and I mean, there's so much stuff that's out there in terms of what they need to do. It's like they should, there's an old saying again from Marcus Aurelius that says, um, stop talking about what a good man should be and just be one. Yeah. Most people actually know, you know, and it, it's basically, I mean, sort of the, the does, does that leader have the courage to do what needs to be done, which is making hard decisions. I mean, a lot of people, you know, it, it's like, Oh, this is painful. I don't want to do it. I love my Doberman puppy so much. I can't bear to cut off its tail. So I'll do it one inch at a time, you know, and, and that's not leadership. Mm -hmm. So do, do they have the courage to do what to, to do what needs to be done? Because they're the ones that are in charge. Do, do they have the sense of justice and fair play and thinking about people instead of, you know, how do you find the balance of all of this? And, 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 and do, they, do they have just sort of the wisdom and the critical thinking? And so what you're finding is a lot of people aren't, they have titles, but they're not really leaders and it's gonna be exposed. I mean, one of, one of the things that happens is a lot of this stuff will sort itself out as, as let, let's just say a crisis is a good way to sort out a lot of the BS that people are slinging around. And, and if we all end up sitting there going, holy crap, we're, we're in a big pile of uh, big pile of doo doo. What are we going to do about it? And off we go. So, so nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with a little bit of honesty. A little bit of honesty. All right. Well, let's uh, let, let's just turn to a little bit of the future. Um, 
you know, where perhaps your calculus was at the beginning of the year where you thought, you know, the technological trends were leading um, in the industrial market, the business model trends, uh, how, first of all, what were they? What, what do you think the main, the major trends are? And what, how do you think the coronavirus has changed that calculus uh, from your part? Two different things. I, I think all the coronavirus has done so far is distract everybody okay. and will probably accelerate the, the emergence of a lot of those trends that are maybe on the outside. One, one has to do with digital and, and just taking processes both inside and outside the company that are digital, that, that are analog and making them digital. And, and we, we, we have spent a lot of time, we actually teach that course in an executive program at Purdue. But, but one of the things that, that, that I think is gonna happen, excuse me, you're gonna see changes in the role of the sales force. The general line self-directed salesperson is rapidly gonna become um, a thing of the past. Uh, Forger did a study back in 2015 and said there's four and a half million B2B salespeople in the US. And by 2020, we're gonna lose a million of them. And it happened in 2019 because a lot, of, a lot of them are being replaced by inside sales, online ordering, punch out computer to computer in terms of supply chains. And, and so a lot of the sort of the traditional deal of the sales guy is gonna go out and build relationships. Um, that You're gonna see massive changes in how companies do sales and marketing as we go forward. I think from, from a factory floor point of view, um, the, the other, the big thing for me, and I'm, I'm definitely on the outside looking in on this. So I'm, you ask me, I'll tell you what I think, but remember back, I'm old enough that I did drugs in the 60s, so this could all be wrong. Um, but, but there are a number of major global manufacturers that are trying to, you know, everybody wants to get into the internet of things. And that's kind of like the latest, greatest. And it's kind of, if you go back to the early days of the automobile, we had over 130 automotive manufacturers in the US. And, and they all basically went away and you're seeing an awful lot of that right now. But the big guys, what they're trying to do is, and I'm gonna be very careful and not name names, but what they wanna do is, I wanna lock you up in my ecosystem. I want you to, whatever my brand is, I wanna have my brand everywhere and all the rest of it. And, and this is kind of like the old uh, Betamax and VHF tape wars and, and open systems are, are where it's gonna go. Being able to play with other people and locking it up. And I think those models were really appropriate. And I think when you start looking at business models and how do you actually design a business model, locking somebody up. I mean, just think about how excited you are with all your software and, and, and with Google and Microsoft and Apple and everything else pulling you into the ecosystem where it's hard for you to get out. Mm -hmm. um, people don't like that. I don't like to be held hostage by somebody that tells me they're going to take care of me and love me. And it's all going to be great because I know that's not true. So, you know, having open competition, I think the guys well, that are- I mean, my, I, just, a, just a quick little uh, survey of my engineering team shows a extreme preference for Android over Apple. Just uh, I, I can tell you a lot about that, but 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 one of the reasons that Android has gained so much share is because they're allowing it to be an open system and let people play. Um, what one of the things uh, uh, to me? Um, can, can I talk about your company just for a bit? Sure, sure. Um, you're an Encompass partner with a company called Rockwell, and and 
one of the things that Rockwell's done is they've said, look, we want to build an ecosystem. We're going to focus on the analytics because that's the part everybody's leaving out. We got all this data. Nobody knows what to do with it. You know, we, we've got, I forgot what the number is beyond beyond an exabyte, but now they're talking about things beyond exabytes. There's like already 220, I can't, the number's so big, I can't even do the zeros, I'm too old. But but all these data's out there, people aren't doing the, the, the analytics. The analytics is how do I, how do I take this information and make better resource decisions to stay in flow? And and the guys that are trying to wrap it up and be the one stop, you know, your, your engineer guys going with the Android, they're going with it for a reason because they, they want they want the capability, but they want the freedom as well. And I, I think the freedom model is going to work a whole lot better than the integrated I own your life. So so I think that's going to end up shaping a lot of this. And I think a lot of the Internet of Things, I think we're going to see huge changes um, very rapidly that were already underway. I think the pandemic just kind of slowed things down. And, and frankly, you have to ask, thinking about your engineering guys, and, and I won't put you in the spot, but as long as everything's going to be sucking for the next three months, there's probably an awful lot of engineers say, this is a great time for us to engineer version two of whatever it is we're doing. And you're going to see a bunch of really cool new stuff coming out. So you think, so you're pretty, you're pretty bullish on the creativity being, you know, this extra, the extra time available about kind of creativity being released, huh? Well, look at the difference. If, if, if you were a weak company, right. And your employees start figuring out we're going to, cutting off the puppy tail one inch at a time and every other week you're doing a layoff and all of us, there's not going to be a lot of creativity and energy other than doing a resume and looking for another job. But, 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 but the thing is if the company's strong and they've got a good balance sheet and they're clear. It's a wonderful opportunity. I mean, the, 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 the social distancing and, and, and uh, doing this whole deal is actually, I mean, there could be an awful lot of interesting things going on. So, so, but I mean, in terms of in terms of where this is going to go, I think the open systems, you know, kind of like, well, I think a lot of a lot of a lot of people are starting to go that way instead of trying to do this. Just it's really hard not to name names in this, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but but I think the open system is going to work. I I think the analytics are the key piece that's missing because part part of this is and and when we do big data, uh, we teach this at. at uh, and the Purdue course at University of Innovative Distribution, it's easy to find all the data. People go, well, well, now they have it, what do I do with it? And, and the key thing is the information should allow you to make better resource decisions so that you can get better output out of your plant and do all the rest of the things you're trying to do. And it also improves safety and the rest of it. But but if you don't have the analytics, none of it does you any good. And and so there, there's, and typically, you're, as you see this AI thing going on, my, my son designs uh, AI chips. That's what he does. He designs computer chips. And I, I understand maybe 20% of what he does. But, but the, the AI chips are going to be eliminating people, right? Instead of having software that can sit here and run something, I'm going to, it's, when you start looking at what's happening with AI and you start looking at the blockchain, we're going to see major disruptions in our workforce and how this is going to go. But I, I think if I look at industrial automation, um, we are entering what I think is going to end up being the wild west for probably the next two decades as this thing goes. And, and uh, it, it will end up turning into a growth industry because what you're going to see is you're going to see the convergence of the hardware guys, the software guys, and then they're going to be putting a lot of this AI on top, 
which is going to you know really lower a lot of the factory stuff in terms of headcount and the rest of it. I mean, there's huge issues in terms of what happens. These people don't have jobs anymore. But I mean, and and that'll that'll be that's for your generation. I'll be dead by the time people sort that out. Universal basic income, I guess. We're all going to be getting a check here, I guess, in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, and 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 at this point, I hope it doesn't bounce. <laughs> well, um, on that note, Mike, is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with, or uh, any other piece of advice you want to pass on? Uh, I am. I am. Uh, in terms of this pandemic, I, it bothers me that people aren't taking it seriously. And, and the ones that aren't taking it seriously, are, we're going to pay a bigger price because we don't. But, but, but this, this too will pass. I mean, it, it's just this is the blip. 9-11 passed. You know, I, I've been through all kinds of stuff. I mean, it, it back, back yeah, all right, we're not going to talk about the Vietnam War. <laughs> but there, there always seems to be something. And we'll get this done. This will be behind us. And and maybe we'll do something better about healthcare. Maybe we'll, you know, let's be optimistic. But this will pass. Life will go on. Companies will still compete. This is just there. There's it. It's do you have do you have any kids, Drew? I got a, a two-year-old boy and a four-year-old boy. All right. Well, here here's the deal. Well, they're going to turn into teenagers, and 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 the key thing is that that. Really good parenting means you didn't actually kill them when they were teenagers. You let them actually grow out of it and continue to live. But but at, at some point, well, but I mean, you, you have all this drama. It completely messes up your social life. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Right. And then then you end up with your kids out and they don't have time time for you. So but it seems there's always a pile of poo in your plate. Right. You got little kids. It's taking all the time. You got to drive them around to karate lessons and Boy Scouts and girl, you know, whatever. But that pile of poo will just change at some point. You have another pile of poo. So, so we always have a pile of poo. Right now it says coronavirus and, and whining is not an exit strategy and hope is not a strategy. And this is just our pile of poo. So Mark Twain had an old line. He said, if you've got a bunch of tough things to do, the very first thing you should do every day is eat a live frog because everything else will seem easy. And just so it's kind of like suck it up get a life and, and just deal with it. And when this is done, we'll have another pile of poop and you'll miss the kids. It happens really fast, man. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Um, and how can people reach you? Um, M marks at IRCG.com M M A R K S at IRCG.com. So, thank and I'm pretty good at email cause we're all working from home now, Drew. <laughs> well, thank you very much for all your advice. And, um, uh, have a great day. All right. I look forward to chatting. It's really important for the next couple of months that you don't lick any doorknobs. <laughs> no licking doorknobs, everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the key point. All right, man. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, visit our website at factoryfuturist.com or find us on whichever podcast app you use. Thank you for listening. I'm Drew Allen. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.